You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on September 14th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Chichaco. Live music was performed by Ninjuzu Marimbas. introduce our first speaker of the night. Um, that is Tana Peters. Tana, known to many as TP, embraces the humor in life, which she has learned to do after logging more than 25 years of living in Alaska. A consummate crafter, she's created everything from theater sets and museum mounts to beer labels and trending hashtags. Also, for those who are following, this is her make for today. Please help me welcome Tana. Hello. This is a story about the word Chichaco. Very shocking, I know. They sort of, um, you know, riffed on my intro a little bit here, so I'm just going to ask for a second. Anyone in the audience tonight did not already know what the word Chichaco is? We got a couple. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So now you know you are one. Welcome. <laughs> Um, Chichaco, as they said, is a newcomer or um, some kind of greenhorn, generally speaking, to Alaska. And um, if you are not a Chichaco, what you become is a sourdough. And according to my father, who is, of course, the um, ultimate on everything, he always said that you were a Chichaco until you became a sourdough, and that was a, if you were born here, or B, if you lived here 50 years. Yeah, so it takes a while. <laughs> and you know, you know when you're like walking down the street in Juneau and you see a tourist or something and they're like, oh my God, are you from here? And you're like, oh yeah. And they're like, oh, that's how you're born and raised. Oh, that's great. And I always have this moment where I have to be like, oh, this is super awkward. Because technically, I moved here when I was one year old, so I was technically not born here, but I was raised here. And I don't know if I want to have this like weird conversation with this random stranger right now about how I came up on a ferry when I was one. Anyway, it's super awkward. And technically, according to my father's definition, which I think he made only because of me, I am still a Chichaco. I have about 25 more years to go, so that's awesome. Thanks, Dad. Um, how many people in the room, according to my father's definition, are actually a sourdough? Yeah. Good job, guys. <laughs> so anyway, to my story. About six years ago, I uh, was working for the Juno Empire, probably um, along with everyone else who just raised their hand. <laughs> and... <laughs> When I worked at the Juno Empire, in fact, it was August 5th, 2010, I was a graphic designer, and also I had a little column that I wrote for them. And uh, I did it a, as a freelance side gig for them, and this column was, was very heavy hitting. It was, it was really, you know, the, the deep linguistic sort of stuff that, that really Junoites love because it was all about crafting. That's right, I, I am a, I'm a big crafter, and my column was kind of like the penultimate of everything. It was, you know, full of alliteration and pieces about, 
you know, knitting, using your arms as knitting needles, very complicated stuff. So <laughs> as, you know, an empire writer, I sometimes felt like I was not always like with the rest of the crew as the craft writer. And I always wanted to be as cool as everybody else, like really, you know, stand up with them. So one day I came into work and I checked my email, and I had a little message from a follower of my blog. Yes, that's right, I had one follower on my craft blog. Someone read my articles. I know you're all jealous right now. <laughs> Anyhow, so I checked this email, I'm very excited, and it says, hey, Tana, guess what? Today, you're on dictionary.com. Dictionary.com. I was so excited. I was like, I bet none of the other writers here have ever been on dictionary.com. I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but I'm excited. <laughs> Immediately, I called over one of my coworkers, Katie Spielberger. Now, I don't know if you know Katie Spielberger, but she's a former Mudrooms board member, and she is the biggest word nerd I have ever met. I'm talking this girl loves words more than anything, more than life. She wants to know about words past, words present, words future, everything about words and linguists. So I thought she might be really excited about me being on dictionary.com. So Katie came over, we go on dictionary.com. We look it up and it says, oh, there's a feature called word of the day. Weirdly, I had never been on before, so I didn't know about this feature. But I get on, Word of the day, guess what the word is? Nice job, it was Chichaco. <laughs> so I read the definition, it says something about a newcomer, greenhorn, blah, 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 I'm scrolling through looking for my name because that's what the important part is, right? <laughs> I get down there and it says, oh, I'm quoted, I'm quoted because I wrote an article, a piece, one of my column articles was about me traveling to other destinations and it was craft encounters wherever you go and, and in this piece I talked about being a chichaco to this place I was traveling to and wasn't it fun to meet the new blah 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 crafters, etc. So they had quoted me, they had me and they had another quote from a book about a sourdough man meeting a chichaco girl, something like that. So. We were the two people they quoted, and so I'm reading through and I'm saying, oh yeah, greenhorn, whatever, I'm feeling great, feeling good, Katie, look at me go. And then I keep reading and it says, you know, greenhorn, Chichaco too, places like Alaska and Hawaii. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. I didn't know they used this word in Hawaii. I, in fact, that's like super weird because I thought they had another word for that in Hawaii. And it's just like super weird because I was in Hawaii when I wrote that article, so I was like traveling there and oh, crap. Oh, crap. Yeah. I had just inadvertently, accidentally, and conclusively redefined the word chichaco for the entire internet <laughs> with my craft blog. <laughs> That's right. So, anyway, I was really afraid then because I was like, Katie, don't look. Don't, don't look, Katie, don't look. All my street cred was going out the window. I was super stressed about it. But as things go, Katie was like really excited about it then. She was like, you just redefined a word accidentally for the whole world. <laughs> 
So then I was like, okay, I guess, but you know, you should really like email them and let them know because that's like super inaccurate and totally wrong. And she was like, oh yeah, I'll take care of that. And I just looked yesterday, it's still there. <laughs> yeah, so anyhow, the moral of my story is literally never ever believe anything that's on the internet. Do not use dictionary.com as a resource at all. And whether they're a chichaco or a sourdough, it really doesn't matter. Always have a friend like Katie Spielberger to take your failures and turn them into successes. Thanks. Tonight's next speaker is Nico Buss. Nico Buss is by now considered a sourdough, but when he moved here from the Netherlands in 1975, he was a real chichaco. Born into a family of construction workers, Nico was the only one of five siblings who ended up in a white-collar job. He was lured to Juneau from the bustling European city, The Hague, by his future wife, Susan, herself a chichaco, a Los Angeles transplant who was hired by the U.S. Forest Service the first year they hired women on field crews. He has since built a wilderness cabin and peed in the Yukon River. <laughs> Two undisputed criteria in becoming a sourdough. An avid soccer player, Nico helped start the Juno Soccer Club and coached many a youth soccer player. Now retired after 30 plus year career with the state, he drives tour buses in the summer. Yes, Nico Bus, the bus driver and travels frequently in the fall and spring to explore America's many beautiful national parks and historical places. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Nico Buss. Well, good evening. My name is Nico, and uh, I was at Chichaco in 1976. Before that, I had lived in Holland, minding my business, like Dutch people do. I was standing to the tulip fields, milking the cows, getting all the cheeses that I wanted, drinking my Heineken, and going after that little boy, giving him a break, putting my finger in the dike. And then, if I wasn't bicycling, I would try to ice skate on the canals next to the windmills. I had a great time until I got a little note from my cousin in America. He says, I have this college friend. She's coming to Holland. Could you show her around? Well, I'm really glad he did that because this young lady was really fantastic, very adventurous, full of humor, and we hit it off right away. So I showed her around Europe. She asked me to come to Juneau, Alaska. I go, where is that? So, I came here, fell in love with this area. She came back to Holland one more time, and I decided I need to figure out if this relationship is gonna work. So I quit my real job, which was an accountant for a CPA firm, and I moved to Juneau, Alaska. Now, mind you, I was on a tourist visa, which means you're not allowed to work for pay. So I had a little savings account, and I tried to stretch that savings as much as I could. Now, one thing you need to do when you get to Juno is make sure that you have cheap housing because it's really, really expensive. So the way I did that, I uh, negotiated with this church to become their janitor. And in trade, I lived in the loft at the end of this uh, 
building for one year, so cheap. <laughs> I'm Dutch, okay. <laughs> so um, the other thing, in order to stretch my savings further, I decided in Europe, the way they teach young people to do a skill, they do an apprentice program. So I thought I used that model and tell people in general that if they wanted a young, energetic, foolish person working for almost nothing, they could either take me on a fishing trip, buy me a meal, or give me a stipend to get gas or whatever. So word got out, and uh, I got busy. Some of the things I ended up doing, I volunteered, for instance, in Tenneke, which I had heard was going to build a bridge. So I thought it was great. I went to Tenneke and built a bridge over the Indian River, sat in the hot tub, drank beer. It was a great thing. But one of the things I really liked to do was fall trees because that was real Alaskan, right? Now, that opportunity was offered to me when an elderly couple called and inquired if I could fall a hazardous tree in their yard. I didn't know what a hazardous tree meant, but I said, you know, do you know I don't really have any experience, but if you want to try me, I'll be happy to do that. <laughs> Provided that you bring me the chainsaw because I don't own one. So, <laughs> so they asked me to come out to their home, which was on the beach past Ak Bay. Beautiful place, right on the beach, really expensive home. So here I understood why it's called a hazardous tree. So the tree is leaning towards the house, really expensive house, on one side, and on the other side, it's leaning towards the power lines. So being young and foolish, I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and so the owner shows me how to operate the chainsaw. <laughs> and he leaves for work. <laughs> so I'm standing there, scratching my head, going, what did I get myself into? Well, being an accountant, you know, you use your brain, right? So I did the math. I stepped out the length of the tree in its shadow, and I figured the tree was twice as long as the distance between the tree and the house. So I could not follow it that direction or to the power line. The only option I had was to cut the tree in half. Wow, good plan of attack. How do you do that? Well, I looked for a ladder, put the ladder against the tree, and hit the midway. I go, great. So now, how do I cut the tree? I have only two hands, and so you need to pull the trigger and push pressure on it. And just recently, I bought a chainsaw, and it has a manual. And in the manual, there's little diagrams. And one of the diagrams is never put a ladder against a tree and use a chainsaw. <laughs> well, I just did that. I climbed the tree. And then I thought, it would really be handy to have one of those harnesses you see in the uh, logging days where these guys hang back and, you know, they can use two hands. But I figured, I'm young and strong, I use one hand. Use the chainsaw, hang on to the tree or the ladder. So I just did that. And as I was trying to make the undercut, the, chain is, the chainsaw is right in front of my face. No goggles, no earmuffs and it's buzzing right in front of my eyes. Well, chips flying everywhere. I made the undercut, and then I go, well, I hope I did the math right. 
I never thought about the liability because in Holland they don't sue anybody, but here you can get in big trouble if you damage somebody's property, right? I knew I couldn't fall to the power lines because that would alarm all the neighbors, they lose their electricity. So I start pushing the tree when I was just about to go and I pushed and pushed and pushed and it fell right towards the house. Oh no, I hope I did my math right. Climbed down the tree, walked to the front door and I did my math right. The good accountant in me, the tree was that far from the front door. <laughs> I quickly limped all the branches, bucked up the top of the tree, cut the bottom, made all nice rounds, put it in this gentleman's woodshed, cleaned it up, and when he came home, he was impressed. Driver was clean, tree was gone, pile branches one side, woodshed full, and he paid me a really nice compliment. He said, not bad for Chichaco. <laughs> so, before the end of my tourist visa, we decided to get married. We've been married for 40 years. We have a wonderful family in Juneau. Our son and his wife, Leon and Torin, live in Juneau. Alita lives here, and I'm proud to be a Junoite. Thank you for listening to my Chichaco story. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Candace Bressler. Candace makes the best peach cobbler around, and she says y'all a lot. In her spare time, she writes for the blog youknowjuno.com, which chronicles her adventures in Alaska. Candace never imagined she'd be living in a rainforest in Alaska, but she loves calling Douglas Island her home. Please help me welcome Candace. Hey, y'all. <laughs> so I am originally from Huntsville, Alabama, AKA the Rocket City, AKA Hunts Vegas, because what happens in Huntsville stays in Huntsville. Huntsville, Alabama, it's about the size of Anchorage, except we have 14 McDonald's and 226 churches and a lot of humidity. So you can imagine how different it is growing up in Alabama compared to up here in Alaska. I first stepped foot in Alaska in November 2008. I flew up here for a job interview and I knew only one person in the whole state of Alaska, my good friend Sharon, who's this tour guide extraordinaire. And we were up in Anchorage, and she took me to Moose's Tooth Pizza. And I remember looking at the menu and just marveling at how expensive pizzas were up here. <laughs> and then we decided to go up to Flat Top Mountain for a little bit of a hike. Except this was in November, AKA the time of snow and ice beginning in Alaska. And what did I choose to wear for my first visit, my first time in Alaska? I wore cowboy boots. <laughs> and I'm not talking about, you know, your rugged Wrangler type of cowboy boots. I'm talking about pointy toed, black leather, slick bottom cowboy boots. And so we go on our little walk to see the beautiful aerial lights, the the um, overview of downtown Anchorage, 
And within a matter of minutes, I wipe out. Cold, on the ground, just wiped out. And I didn't know what had hit me. I had never really walked on snow and ice before, living in the south. I didn't know what had happened. It took me a few minutes to kind of come to my senses and get up. You know, and I was in so much pain already. And I said, Sharon, I, I think I'm kind of done. I think we should go. So we go back to Sharon's SUV. I go to reach for the, the car door. And wham, out again. I, I learned very quickly that evening that, that cowboy boots, they might be great on a dance floor or in the saddle, but they are not very graceful when it comes to being on the snow and ice. And about three months later, I moved to Alaska. And there were a lot of self-discoveries and, and embarrassments that first year. Like for instance, my first Halloween in Alaska, I was so excited here in Juneau to get all dressed up and go out and party with my new friends like a real Alaskan. And my costume choice for the evening was I thought it was epic. I thought it was a genius. My costume choice was Sarah Palin, circa 2008 campaign trail. And y'all, I had the whole nine yards down, right? I had the big beehive, I had the glasses, I had the red power suit, and I was just styling and profiling, and I was so excited to go downtown. And we went to the rendezvous, and I... <laughs> And I entered a costume contest, and I was so excited to get up on stage with all my new friends here in Juneau, and I'm up on stage doing my best folksy Sarah Palin impression, don't you know, you betcha, and all of this. Y'all, I got booed off stage. <laughs> and I couldn't quite understand why... She wasn't so adored here in, you know, in the capital city as she was in my neck of the woods in Alabama. I just didn't get it. <laughs> it was a fun night. <laughs> and so a few months later, I landed my dream job. And that is when the real learning began. That is when I started to earn my, my Alaska street cred, so to speak. I got a job that allowed me to travel all over the state. Um, within about seven years, I was able to earn about 136,000 miles on Alaska Airlines. And I was going all over the state just visiting these beautiful, epic places I didn't even know existed. I was able to develop these lifelong friendships that happened just out of chance encounters. I was able to eat muktuk. I was able to play soccer with a muskox calf. And there was also this one time where I got kicked in the face by a moose. I do have the pictures to prove it, it actually happened. <laughs> I would say that Alaska has definitely changed me, and I would say that it has changed me for the better. I wear cuspucks now, and I no longer rush out the house to buy milk and bread when I see snow flurries. 
I have learned to, <laughs> still happens in Alabama, <laughs> hashtag climate change. Um, I have learned to not impersonate Sarah Palin at Halloween parties. I still say y'all all the time, but I have definitely learned to wear practical footwear. And you know, my, my roots, they definitely still run deep in the South. Sweet home Alabama, that will always be part of my life and part of my identity. But I've got to tell you that home is where the heart is. And my heart is no longer in Alabama. My home and my heart is right here. It is right here with you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Graham Story, an Alaskan resident since 97 and in Juneau for the past 13. Graham enjoys new challenges and often finds himself in the position as a Chichaco. He enjoys robust debate, even if the other side is wrong, <laughs> and really dug the letter the president of his grad school, University of Chicago, sent to incoming freshmen that they will not find safe spaces that are used to stifle conversation and not surprised that the former president of his undergrad wrote that he disagreed with that. He sat on a nuclear missile, loves history, and is nervous as hell to be here. Please welcome to the stage, Graham Story. So I don't have an Alaska-specific Chicago story, uh, but I do definitely have a, a story that, that relates. And I probably became aware of that term, sort of the greenhorn, the Chicago, the new guy watching the, you know, the John Wayne movies. And then I moved on to um, Louis L'Amour books and really understood the term of greenhorn, and that's where I learned about mossy horns, and I wanted to be a mossy horn. But then I joined the Navy, and in the Navy you have two people. You have salts, actually you have three. You have salts, those experienced sailors, then you have the really experienced sailors, those old salts, and then you have the nubs, and the nubs are non-useful bodies. <laughs> so I joined the Navy for six years, and the reason it was six years is because I went on to submarines, and um, my submarine was the Houston, but we were stationed in San Diego. So anyway, su submarines, they need you there for six years, and the reason they need you there for six years is because you are, go to school for those first two years. Eight weeks, nine weeks, 11 weeks of boot camp, whatever it was. And then after boot camp, you have to go to your basic A school. And that's your school where you learn what you're going to do as an enlisted guy. And I was going to be radio man. So I went to 11 weeks of boot camp, and I came out as an E3, enlisted man, third grade up in the enlisted man. And that's pretty good, because there's only nine enlisted men ranks. So I was one third of the way through. Because when I joined the Navy, my goal was I was going to be an old salt. That was my goal. So then I went to the A school. and learned how to operate radios that the Navy has, and when I was done with radio school, I must have been doing something really well, because now I'm an E4, and I'm a petty officer, and I actually have some you know, authority, and I'm doing something really good. But then I go to Connecticut, and in Connecticut, I have to go to basic enlisted submarine school, and that's about a 12-week course. Learn everything there is to know about submarines, history of submarines. 1957, the first submarine to sail, circumnavigate the globe, submerged USS Nautilus. Any other submarine trivia? I'll be glad to tell you later. 
And then after the basic enlisted submarine school, then you have to go to the submarine school that's going to teach you how to actually operate the radios that your submarine has. And so that's another, you know, eight or so weeks. And then I got my orders to my submarine, and like I said, it's going to be the Houston, and it's going to be stationed in San Diego. So I got done with all my schooling. I'm in E4. I'm doing great. I know my job. They send me out to San Diego. My boat's not there. It's actually overseas. So they said, okay, we're going to send you out to another school. So they sent me back to Connecticut. And you got to realize now, I have been to the fleet. I haven't been on my ship, but I've been to a real Navy base. So when I went back to my Connecticut schooling, I was assault because I had experience. <laughs> I had a flashlight, mag light, clipped to my belt. That was experience. So I got done with this one more school, and they send me out to Saint, uh, excuse me, the Philippines. They fly me all the way out to the Philippines, and I'm there for one night, and I meet another uh, sailor, Tom Birdsong. He'd been on the boat for a while. He actually was from Houston. And so we, we uh, hit the bars that night, then that next morning we uh, go out to the, to the base, the breakwaters, and I can just watch my submarine sail around. I can still see that picture, bright blue skies, the Philippine seas, and just that submarine coming around the breakwater, and that, that's my ship. I'm going to make that my ship. I'm going to be the biggest old salt on that ship. As soon as I step forward, people are going to know who I am. So I get on board, and right away I realize that I'm a nub, a non-useful body. <laughs> And it got driven home sort of in two ways. Because when you first go on board, if you're not a nuclear-trained operator, because it's a nuclear-powered submarine, if you're not a nuclear-trained operator, you become what we call the gopher, or the messenger of the watch. Because you have the guys driving the boat, and you have the guy navigating, and you have the guy giving the orders, and they really can't leave the bridge. So if they need to get a cup of coffee, well, you're the one who go, gets the coffee. You go for it. So I went to get coffee, and I don't come from a coffee-drinking family, so I really don't know about coffee. But I do know the rule, and the rule is if you take the last cup out of the pot, you got to make new coffee. So there I am, and sure enough, I, I took that last cup. I'm not from a coffee-drinking family, but, you know, I'm trained two years naval training. And I look at this, and they say, well, this moves, and I pull this out, and there's a coffee filter there with coffee grounds in it. It's like, okay, so... Well, there's some unused coffee filters, and there's our five-gallon jug of coffee grounds. So I take out the old filter, and I throw it away, and I put the new filter in, and I fill it to the brim <laughs> with coffee. And I'm thinking, this is good. I'm making my mark. I'm well on my way to become that old salt. And I pour the new cups of coffee, and I take it up to the bridge, and I give the coffee to the people who ordered the coffee, and they look at me like they're not too far from a fool. And at that point, they were not too far from a fool. But that's, not, that's just the first indication that my plans of not being a greenhorn, not being the Chichaco, were, were not um, well underway. Because in the Navy, on ships, they like to drill. They like to drill, what happens if there's a fire? What happens if there's a flood? What happens if somebody shoots a weapon at you? What happens if you're going to shoot a weapon at somebody else? And they drill all the time. And the people who run the drills, I found out now, have special hats. So we're maybe four days out from sea, or out from the Philippines, four days on, on my real Navy career. And they say, Petty, ask a story, messenger of the watch. And I say, yes, sir. And they say, well, you need you to run back to Nucleonics. Deliver this message. Nucleonics was this lab way in the aft part of the submarine where they test water for the nuclear reactor to make sure that the parts that are supposed to be nuclear are nuclear, and the parts that are not supposed to be nuclear are not nuclear. 
So I go down, I take the message, and I go down, I go walking through the mess decks, and I turn the corners, and I go walking past the reactor compartment, I go walking past the reactor control compartment, I'm going past the shaft, and I get to nucleonics. And I get to nucleonics, and I see some people. And they're wearing hats. And some of the people, they're waving plastic in the air. And I'm looking to myself, why are these people wearing hats, and why are they waving plastic in the air? And they're all looking at me like I, they want me to do something. I don't know what it is. So I have my message, and I deliver the message to the person I'm supposed to deliver the message to, and they look at me like this, and it's like they look back at me, and I say, well, there's the message. And they said, okay, and I turn around, and I go back. And I will go back, and I go past the nuclear reactor control room, and I go past the nuclear reactor. I go past the mess decks, and I go back up to the bridge. And remember, you know, if you're going to be the best sailor on board, you really want your captain's attention. And I get back to that bridge, and I have my captain's attention. And he says, Petty, I have a story. And I say, yes, sir. So what did you just do? And I said, I just went back and I delivered a message, sir. And he said, what did you see? And I said, I saw people wearing blue hats and I saw people wearing red hats and the people wearing blue hats, they were waving stuff around. And I delivered my message and I came back here, sir. And I went from being about six feet two to about four feet two, four foot three, maybe even three feet because those people wearing the hats and they were waving, well, they were practicing a fire drill. And I was supposed to be the person to see the smoke in the air, the plastic flapping around. And I was supposed to go to the one MC and I was supposed to say, control room nucleonics, fire in the nucleonics lab. And then there's supposed to be people running all over the place to put out this fire. Yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> and I got my captain's attention. And let's just say, I did not become that old salt, but I definitely was a nub. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on September 14, 2016 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Chichaco. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Our next story is by Tony Newman. Tony was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the sixth of 11 children. After college, he found a job as a journalist for a news service in Washington, DC, which then transferred him to Los Angeles, where this story begins. He had just about given up on finding the right women, woman when... <laughs> <laughs> When there on the Santa Monica promenade, he happened to meet a young lady who was born and raised in a place called Eagle River, Alaska. He swears he asked her out for coffee only because he was interested in learning more about what it was like to grow up on last frontier. And he hoped to visit Alaska someday. So picture the two of them sitting there at the sidewalk table sharing a cup of tea and hot chocolate as we welcome Tony to the stage. So yeah, it was uh, February 1992, and uh, after that cup of coffee, we had another one, and a date followed, and things got pretty serious pretty fast between Linda and me. Uh, 
and by spring we were making plans to go to Alaska so I could meet her parents and then she, we'd take her to the East Coast where she could meet mine. And I didn't tell her this, but my plans also included finding a quiet moment alone with her parents where I could ask uh, for their blessing because I intended to ask Linda to marry me. So that was the plan anyway, but then about a month before we were supposed to go, my boss called me up and said she had an opportunity for me to travel to Alaska for work. And uh, as long as I was going, why don't I take a couple of days to look around? So I would be going to Alaska a full month ahead of schedule without Linda, uh, but meeting her parents uh, nevertheless. I think she was a little bit nervous about her chatty city uh, boyfriend going up there to meet her very reserved country uh, folks. Uh, her dad in particular, Boyd Bennett, who was a farm boy, a retired master drill sergeant in the Air Force, uh, avid hunter, avid fisherman, uh, fan of country music. His favorite drink was root beer, and if he could live his life over again, he wanted to be a truck driver. <laughs> and he looked kind of like you might expect. He had a body of a bulldog. <clears throat> he kind of had a face like a bulldog, too. He, he had a handshake like a vice, and when he said, welcome to Alaska to me, I wasn't sure if it was an order or if he was really welcoming me. But, but Boyd uh, was a man who, whose actions spoke more than words uh, did for him. He, uh, he did make me feel welcome, and I was told by he and his wife Shirley that they weren't just going to show me around Anchorage for a couple of hours, which was all I could have hoped for. No, they were going to take me on a three-day motorhome tour around the state. <laughs> just the three of us. And that's when I learned lesson number one about being an Alaskan. When family, when friends, when people you don't even know very well come up here, you, you show them a good time. You, you, you don't hold back. You show them why we live here. And we make sure they've gotten their money's worth for coming up here. So uh, Operation Impress the Prospective In-Laws was underway. And uh, the first thing we did was go to a restaurant where uh, the waiter stepped up to the table and asked what we'd like to drink. And before anybody could say anything, I said, do you got root beer? I love me a tall glass of root beer. <laughs> and sure enough, Boyd elbows Shirley and says, this guy can't be all bad, he likes root beer. <laughs> so we were off to a good start. Uh, we climbed into the motorhome. I'm not a big motorhome guy, but I got up there in the passenger seat and, and, and gave myself to the, to the trip. Um, now, instead of just a brief moment of time, I had three days to talk about how I wanted to marry their daughter and uh, wanted their blessing. Well, I, I, in my excitement and my eagerness to, to uh, get to know them better, I asked questions of, and, and made observations about everything. Uh, the fact that there were fast food restaurants in Alaska surprised me. The mountains, the rivers, the glaciers, even the mosquitoes. I said to Boyd, you know, we drive and we drive and we get out of this thing and immediately we're just beset upon by mosquitoes. How did they know we were coming? What have they been doing all this time? I still don't know the answer to, this, to that question. But at one point, he cuts me off and says, you ask too many questions. And that's when I learned lesson number two about being an Alaskan, you know? There's nothing wrong with silence. And it was a good lesson for a, a kid from a big, boisterous family to learn. We spent so many hours hiking, fishing, on the road, on the ferry. You gotta be comfortable with silence. And it was good that I learned that lesson because by doing that, by settling down, uh, it drew Boyd out, and he began to tell me about himself and about his decades living here. He'd had many adventures, many, many of them quite harrowing, and he seemed to know every single story 
of, of the bear maulings and the moose tramplings that had occurred in this state. And as he was wrapping up telling me about all these stories, he said, you know, a lot of people worry that in Alaska they're going to get killed by wildlife, but really, really the only thing you need to remember is you don't want to get between a mama and her baby. And so that was a good lesson for me. You don't want to get between an Alaskan parent and his offspring. <laughs> and I decided at that point that I could wait. I'd be coming back in a month. I could find a quiet moment to ask Linda for her blessing, for, for, for ask her parents for their blessing to marry Linda. And I did, and they gave me their blessing. And 25 years went by in the blink of an eye. You know, uh, we, we moved up here, we got married, kids, house, the whole bit. And I think over time, Boyd and I, despite our differences, we uh, developed a deep affection and respect for one another. He uh, would be 88 years old yesterday, but he died in May. And uh, when I look back over all the fishing trips and motorhome trips and family gatherings we were able to enjoy together, I keep coming back for the most comfort to that, to that motorhome trip, that first time we got to know each other. Uh, Boyd had pulled over to the side of the road to uh, stretch his legs, and after hanging out in the motorhome for a minute, I got out of the motorhome, and of course, I immediately stepped out into a cloud of mosquitoes and, and started waving my hands around my head and broke into a run to get away from them, and I came over a rise, and, you know, spectacular view of a mountain range, and before that, a braided river miles wide, uh, and, a, and a meadow of wildflowers leading up to the road. And despite that landscape, the thing that I was most struck by was my future father-in-law laying there in the grass, his back, hands behind his head. Now and then, he'd brush a bug away. But he looked perfectly content and perfectly at peace. And I like to think of him in a place like that now. Thank you. Our next speaker this evening is Tom Kelly. Tom Kelly grew up in rural Wyoming and has been working with young people for about 30 years. He is currently serving Alaska as juvenile justice officer. That's not a question. Uh, his family moved from Kodiak Island to Juneau three years ago. Tom and his wife, Laura, celebrated their 20th anniversary in August, sailing in Glacier Bay. Their two sons are attending Thunder Mountain this year, and they are all hoping for good snow at Eagle Crest this season. Yeah. Amen to that. Welcome, Tom Kelly. Before moving to Alaska, my wife Laura and I were living in Wyoming, and we talked about taking a vacation and seeing the state. And we recognized that two weeks, you can't see much of Alaska. So we started talking about taking a working vacation, moving up, getting jobs, seeing the state. We were at a little sandwich shop in Story, Wyoming, and this fellow rode in on a new Harley <clears throat> He came in and he was celebrating his 80th birthday. Turns out he was an Alaskan bush pilot for over 50 years. And talking with him that afternoon, he gave me some words that stuck with me. He said, Alaska, you'll cuss it, but you'll never regret it. It's a young man's game. 
And a few short months later, we were loading all of our belongings into two U-Haul trailers and driving the Alcan. Our son Ian was seven weeks old. We drove around to Homer, got on the Testamena, ferried out to Kodiak Island. That afternoon, rented an apartment, the bottom of a fourplex, overlooking Mill Bay Beach, and we were in heaven. Coming home from work that first week, I pull in and I see a suspicious character standing off the side of the building. He's wearing a dark pea coat and a watch cap, smoking a cigar and standing just under the eave, out of the rain. I got out of the truck and I hear a, psst, hey you. I look over, like, you talking to me? He's like, yeah, you, hey, you like fish? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I like fish, fine, fish never hurt me. Hey, have I got something for you? He motions me over to his truck, and out of his cooler, he pulls a gallon Ziploc bag full of halibut cheeks, gives them to me. Dion was our upstairs neighbor, and he was an excellent chef. Through the course of that year, he'd come down and bring samples of his culinary creations, and we reciprocated in kind. Dion became one of our aunts and uncles, members of our adjunct extended family that we grew into as we grew into the community. Word went out that the silver salmon were returning to the Buskin River. So Laura and I hid our light fly gear, headed down to Max and got some eight and 10 weight rods, large arbor reels, lots of backing and a handful of salmon streamers. We had a new baby backpack and a new black lab puppy on this expedition. <laughs> Driving towards the Buskin River, Laura is, she's a little concerned that this afternoon might go pear-shaped for her, and I assured her that after being cooped up in the apartment through the winter, that this was her day to fish. We got to the parking lot, she geared up and disappeared down the beach. It'd be a few hours till I'd see her again. I walk over to the river, no salmon. I look out on the extended mud flats at a couple hundred yards out, and it hit me. I'm not gonna fish today. I retired to the beach, and Ian and I played with shells in the sand, and then at about five minute intervals, there would be a fisherman coming up the beach, a silver in each hand, tails dragging the ground, and I was pushed firmly into the Alaska grief cycle. <laughs> Bargaining, denial, <laughs> blame. <laughs> I worked my way through and then I found plastic, the Alaska Air Visa card. We got home that afternoon, and as Laura was changing, I was on the phone to Dewey's Marine in Anchorage, ordering a new Alaska Lund 18-foot with a Yamaha outboard. <laughs> it was a short time later, we learned what it meant to sink a net. I can tell you from experience that 1,500 pounds of salmon, wet subsistence net, kids, gear, parents, we had about four inches of freeboard and thank God it was a flat, calm day because we were able to idle back to the beach where we had launched the skiff. 
Yes, we felt like we were well on our way to becoming sourdoughs after an experience like that. Don't know how much salmon we put up, it was a lot. But given, uh, given Kodiak seasons of icy, slushy, rainy, and snowy, I was about to learn an experience, or learn that even the most routine uh, activities could bring you in contact with the elements. We'd had a beautiful snow followed by some rain and then a hard freeze which covered the island in ice. And waking up in the morning in my long underwear and t-shirt, I decided I'd go out and get the mail and check, get the, get the newspaper. Well, our driveway sloped down, the road sloped up, and on the far side, a 12-foot embankment. I slipped on my tennis shoes, grabbed my parka, and out the door I went, hit the driveway, sliding first forward. My momentum carried me around till I was sliding backward, accelerating toward the road. Slid, shot across the road, hooked my heels in the, the slush berm left by the plow, and went careening off the backside, <laughs> thinking, this can't end well. <laughs> I discovered that the seasons of Kodiak were winter when we all catch up on our sleep, and then come spring bear stalking, uh, red salmon smoking, salmon berry freezing, berry picking, uh, silver salmon netting, pink canning. There's reloading and net mending in there somewhere. Um, then we hit deer season, fall bear stalking, mountain goat chasing, ptarmigan sluicing, and late deer season, which bring us full circle to winter when we all need a good sleep. A few months ago, after a successful halibut trip down here in southeast, I was coming up the dock with a cooler full of fish, and I spied a young couple that I thought was fairly new to Alaska. They were working on their sailboat. I hadn't met them yet, but Travis and Marta were working on the bow of their boat, and I couldn't help myself but say, Psst, hey, you guys like fish? <laughs> hey. Have I got something for you? Thank you. All right, our last speaker tonight is Jim Hale. Jim was born and raised in the New Jersey bush. In 1990, he moved west to take a job teaching at a university in the Great Northwest, and then not finding the Great Northwest to be great enough or Northwest enough. In 1995, he moved to Juneau. He has five kids and two dogs, and in 2011, he met the love of his life, Michelle Bonnet Hale. Jim. Thank you. On Sunday, I've been here in Juneau 21 years. And uh, it wasn't until about five years ago that I started to feel like I actually, I wasn't a newcomer anymore. I started to feel like I belonged here. I, that was when I met Michelle. And Michelle, everybody in town knows Michelle. My joke is that, you know, you can't spit in this town without hitting somebody that Michelle has worked with. And uh, if you don't know Michelle, you know her mother, Sylvia Garrity, or her father, her Benet, or, you know, any of her other family that, the Israel sins that are scattered all over the state, and so her family's all over the state, and so, you know, I'm connected now. But there's more. 
uh, three years ago, we decided, Michelle says, well, let's go to, let's go to St. Paul. Everybody said, great, huh? I've never been to Minneapolis, but. <laughs> She's talking about the pribs. So but I said, yeah, okay, let's go. So we go to the Pribble Ops. We, it's a three-hour flight from Anchorage. We got out to St. Paul, and uh, the weather was crap. The hotel was crap. The food was crap. It was the best vacation I've ever had. You get there, you cross the tarmac from the plane, you come into the airport, and the airport's this big oversized garage with a single light bulb hanging down from the ceiling. And the decor is like early Soviet Union. There's a, rust, the, there's a rusting tractor in the corner, and the other corner there's an implement that hasn't been used since 1957. And, and you go up this ramp, and you go through these doors, and there's the airport. And this was 4th of July week, and there was this big crowd because people were coming home to see their families for the holiday, and the kids were running around screaming and yelling and laughing, and the people were crying and laughing and kissing and hugging. This great big scene, and we make our way through the crowd to the hotel desk, which is a, a desk, and there's a person sitting at the desk, and we said, well, uh, how do we get to the hotel? And she said, well, you, you go down to the end of the hall and make a right. <laughs> the hotel's connected to the, uh, to the, to the airport. <laughs> so that's, that's the hotel, and again, you know, the, the decor, early Soviet, early Soviet Union. So the only place to eat in town is at the Trident Seafood Plant cafeteria. <laughs> which is four miles away from the airport hotel, and there's no public transportation. Well, there is Phil Philomona. Phil Philomona runs what he calls a taxi, but the taxi smells like cat piss. And, <laughs> and he charges $25 a pop to go into town. So you walk every morning, you walk four miles to breakfast, four miles back. Lunch, you walk four miles to lunch, four miles back. Dinner, you walk four miles to dinner, four miles back. So you're walking 24 miles a day. Just, that's min minimum, that's where you start. And then, and the weather, the weather was, it never got over 45 degrees. It was windy, it was rainy. We saw the sun once on a distant hillside. Uh, it was like Juno, it was just like the land of perpetual October. So we're, we're there, and we, uh, you know, I knew a lot of people for the people at the NOAA station there. So they, they took us out to show us fur seals. We spent a day looking at fur seals. We met a guy from the Fish and Wildlife Service. He took, it took us out on one of these cliffs to see seabirds and stuff. And we're not birders, but it was really fascinating. There, these one bird, the, the least auklet, it's just the most amazing bird. There's thousands of them, and they're just incredible little animals. Anyway, and one day we're sitting on the rocks, and the birds are flying all around us, and I said, well, you know, we're going to get on here. <laughs> And Michelle says, those are badges of honor. Well, I, no badges of honor on my head, please. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so uh, one of the things, you know, I give these writing workshops around, around the state. And I, I got in touch with the people in St. Paul before we went. And I said, look, uh, uh, if there's any interest, I'd give it like a half-day workshop, just gratis, just for free, just if there's any interest. And there were, we got like a bunch of people that came. And there were people from the tribe, people from the city. There were... Uh, the mayor showed up, there was this, the superintendent of the school board came, we had some weather service people, and it was, it was really nice half-day class, I just talked about technical writing for, for half a day, and then afterwards, the superintendent of schools comes to me and she says, well, look, we, I've got this letter that's really important, I'd like you to take a look at it if you have some time, I said, oh, yeah, sure, and she says, well, and in payment for that, 
The school board has an apartment downtown, so she lets us use the apartment. So we get the apartment, so we don't have to walk four miles back and forth. Anyway, and we rented a car. After three days, we got tired of walking anyway. So we rented a car from this guy, Biff, who had a car that when you close the front door, the fender fell off. It was $95 a day. Anyway, so the last day we're there, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff because this was just an incredible vacation. You got to go to St. Paul. Anyway, so, no, so, so, the last day, we drive to the end of the road on the southwest corner. And we park the car at the end of the road, and we get out, and we hike. And we hike along these cliffs, Inahunto Bluffs, 600 feet above the Bering Sea. And we're hiking out there, and you know, we, we're trying to get pictures of all these seabirds. So, and again, it's windy, it's wet, it's rainy, it's cold. We're crawling in the grass up to the edge of this cliff to get a picture of some cormorants. And there we are. I'm wet. I'm cold. Uh, Michelle's got her shoulders on my back to get a good shot. And uh, all of a sudden, this feeling came over me. This feeling of uh, like incredible well-being. I'd never felt that before. Just as, it was just like somebody puffed, blew into me and puffed me up with this, this feeling of well-being. You know, I checked Google before I came looking for a synonym for well-being. And they got, you know, like happy and content and fortunate and healthy and all. Well, it was none of that, but it was all of that. It was just this incredible feeling. And when I tried to describe it to Michelle, Michelle said, well, you mean you felt like you belong here? And that's exactly what it was. It was for the first time in my life, there I was, I felt like I belonged, not just in Alaska, not just in Juneau, not in St. Paul, but I felt like I belonged in the world. And even more than that, I felt like I belonged in my own skin for the first time, 60 years old. How about that? <laughs> you gotta go to St. Paul, I tell you. You, <laughs> you won't regret it. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded at the season six premiere of Mudrooms on September 14, 2016. The theme for the evening was Chichaco. To tell your story or to find out about the schedule and themes for the rest of season six, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.